and welcome to ABC Gotham, New York City's amateur history podcast. I am one of your hosts, Kate, and with me is Kathleen. Hello, everybody. And we're here on the second season of our show, and we are yet again at the letter B. And what do we have for this week, Kathleen? This week, lucky you, we are going to tell you all about girl journalist Nellie Bly. And you might have heard this name before or heard something about it before, but she's kick-ass, and you need to learn a little bit more about her. So get comfortable. Yeah, we, we brought her up in our Contagion episode, right? Last time around? Possibly. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or Islands, maybe. I, don't I, know. I know. Oh, Islands. We brought her up in our Islands episode. Mm-hmm. And um, so you, you may know a little bit about her, but we're just, we just love her, so we wanted to go into a little more detail. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Really, really amazing woman. Accomplished a lot. This is in the 20s. There weren't a lot of career girls like her, but she just barged in and did her job and, you know, yeah, made it happen. I love that we're calling her girl. It's, it's We're going to say that the whole time, that she's a girl reporter, first mm-hmm. girl. She does the Around the World in 72 Days, which we'll go into, and mm-hmm. she's always referred to as girl, um, mm-hmm. which we're going to go with, but it was just kind of the era. It Even was. if you were, it, like, it a 50-year-old woman. Yeah, exactly. And then, I mean, a lot of the really exciting stuff in her career was, like, age 18 through 30, about. I mean, she was she was pretty young. Uh, not a girl, obviously. I'd say the cutoff for girl is, like, 15, maybe. I don't know. Then you get into 16? young woman. 16? I'd go with 18, but yeah, 18. a 30-year-old woman, I, I don't consider myself a girl. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I ain't a girl. Don't don't call me that, please. Um, but yeah, she was, and she was sort of part of a gang of like enterprising girl journalists. But she's definitely is in the mm-hmm. forefront of the the girl reporters, and she really makes a name for mm-hmm, herself. Mm-hmm. But it sounds like it was a struggle the whole time. It was, you know, not only was it difficult becoming a journalist in the first place, but the the gigs she got and the the work she did uh, a lot of it was her really fighting for substantial important stuff and uh i know a big problem especially early in her career was being relegated to women's pages uh the women's page it wasn't even a section was cooking gardening childcare fashion society interesting stuff you know no no problems with that kind of literature but that was typically sort of the, the pink-collar ghetto of journalism, especially for younger women, especially in the 20s. Yeah, it's it sounds pretty boring. I, I have to say, if it were me, I'd be like, really? And I do have a quote she says later about how she doesn't want to be on the fashion and flowers section of the paper. Fashion and flowers, yes. All right, well, why don't you get us started with, with Nellie Bly's early life? Sure. Uh, Nellie Bly was actually born Elizabeth Jane Cochran. Then that's C-O-C-R-A-N. But then at some point she changes it to Cochran with an E. So she really takes this, I'm going to change my name thing pretty seriously. She, it sh- oh, yeah. changes a lot in her life. She's born just outside of Pittsburgh in Burrell Township in Armstrong County, Pennsylvania. Uh, she comes from a very working class family. Uh, her father was a laborer and a mill worker. 
Uh, he he's actually an, it's an amazing story. He works really hard, and he actually bought the local mill and most of the land around the house. So, you know, no slouch. Definitely working extremely hard. But she, he dies when she's six. So then the family's the family's out, and the mother she's kind of taught very early on how hard it is for single women in the world when her mother uh, has to remarry for finances because a single mm-hmm. woman with kids in the world just can't make it alone at the time. She marries and Nellie gets Elizabeth at the time, gets a stepfather who sadly is very abusive and an alcoholic. Uh, the mother eventually divorce, divorces the stepfather and Nellie actually spoke up at the divorce proceedings against her stepfather. Nice. Nice. Yeah, I was... That's for a little girl to do that that was pretty amazing mm-hmm. and there were a lot of kids involved at the time just to jump in and, and interject her uh, mother and father it was each their second marriage and her father right. had 10 kids and with his first wife and then with Nellie's mom that she is one of five kids so there are 15 kids I don't know if they all wound up with Nellie's mom but damn I know, and even if it's only five kids, that's a lot for one woman to that take care lot. of yeah, on her yeah. own. So you can see why she got herself in the situation she did. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think there was also some uh, uncertainty and confusion and, and messiness with the... He didn't have a will. I believe her father didn't have a will. Right. And so even though he had worked his way up and, you know, basically had the town named after him, you know, Nellie... Her siblings and her mom were not taken care of, and that's why the mom had to marry a, another guy. Yeah, sadly. Mm-hmm. Um, Nellie, whose nickname as a child was Pinky, because mm-hmm. she wore a lot of pink, which didn't last very long. But mm-hmm. I see her as this, like she's such an amazing feminist. I I love that she starts out as this little girly girl in right. pink dresses. <laughs> But in 1880, when Nellie is about 16, the family Mm. moves to Pittsburgh, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and this is kind of the beginning of her girl reporting career. Uh, She gets, she reads an article in the newspaper, this aggressively misogynistic article, and it's, the title of the article is, What Girls Are Good For, by Erasmus Wilson. Kathleen, did you know a working woman is a monstrosity? Monstrosity. She's a monstrosity. A working woman. We're both monstrosities. Oh, man, I've been a monstrosity since I was 15 years old. Yeah, you and me both. (laughs) Uh, So Nellie decides to write a rebuttal under the name Lonely Orphan Girl. (laughs) What a weird name to pick. (laughs) I know. She couldn't have gone with Pinky. Mm Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, the editor, who at the time was George Madden, Hmm. calls for the man who wrote the article because he's really impressed with how, what a great editorial rebuttal Mm -hmm. it, you know, got sent in. He has no idea who it is. Mm -hmm. She, of course, shows up and he's extremely surprised that it's a woman. Mm -hmm. And she shows up because she wants a job. Yeah. He is like, there's no way. No. Because he assumed even a letter written, signed lonely orphan girl naturally because it was so well written and coherent it had to be a man who had written it so you know this this erasmus guy knew all about 
pen names, and he's like, whatever that gentleman is who wrote this fine rebuttal, I need to speak to him and hire him at my newspaper. Yeah. Yeah. Um, she persists, though. She does get a job. Mm-hmm. She talked herself into it. At the Pittsburgh Dispatch. Yeah, she talks him into it. She's She's very good at persuading people in power to give her what she wants. Smart and pushy will get you very, very far. Yes. I have learned this. Um, this is where the name Nellie Bly comes from. Uh, she picks it as her pen name. It's from a song at the time, I believe. Um, most, uh, a lot of people were using pseudonyms, actually, in newspapers at the time, and especially any women who are working for newspapers, because, of course, Kathleen, it's improper for ladies to be employed. Hello, monstrosity. I know. I know it's awful. She she writes articles aimed at social justice, uh, labor laws, protecting working girls. I saw working girls, and I was a little like, working like girls. working girls or mm-hmm. like working girls? But it's basically the state of working women and girls. And, of course, uh, people started going to work, especially in factories and, or as household help, like age 13, 14. These are girls. Yeah. 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 So they weren't no, quote-unquote I mean, working like, girls, but they were girls who had jobs. Oh, I saw, like, prostitutes. Mm-hmm. But that's not it. No. I'm going to cut that out. <laughs> um, she's also um, big into the reform of, of course, Pennsylvania's divorce laws, which at the time favored men strongly. How, and this is this part was pretty amazing. A year after she starts there, she gets herself sent to Mexico as a foreign correspondent and works. She actually wrote a book called Six Months in Mexico. It came out in 1888. And it's all about, an it's an expose of political corruption that kept the citizens of where she went in poverty. And essentially the people with money kept the money and the people in poverty stayed poor. And the government, the government actually expelled her from the country. <laughs> to Mexico is like, get out. Yeah, because the president, or, or I'm not sure what the leader is called at the time, but, but she was very... She called him a dictator. Yeah, she was very openly critical of the president. And they said, that's enough of this American reporter girl. Get her out of here. Yeah, it, I love. I love she got expelled from a country. Yeah, yeah. I love that she she asserted herself. I mean, she's hired at this paper, and and is sent to cover all these women topics. She's like, you know what? I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go to Mexico and be your foreign correspondent. And she just she just did it, and they published her, and it was great. And I don't know how she knew Spanish, but she obviously learned it at some point. I mean, it's amazing to me. It's pretty. Yeah, it's pretty great. She. The, so the paper responds to this daring expose that she did by putting her own boring ex- boring assignments, which is kind of what we were talking about before. And the quote I have is she said, so she's frustrated by, quote, stories about flower shows and fashion. Mm-hmm. And she leaves a note. She doesn't even say goodbye. She just leaves a note for the editor and <laughs> yep. is like, I'm out. I'm gone. Yeah. It says, Dear QO, because that was the editor's uh, pseudonym. Dear QO, I'm off for New York. Look out for me. Bly. And you really should look out for her. She's 23 years old at this time, Mm -hmm. coming to New York City. She keeps her pen name, 
And it's pretty amazing. Within six months, so she moves to New York, and within six months, she's working at Joseph Pulitzer's New York World. Nice. Like, wow. How do you, wow. Here I come. Here's some clippings. Hire me. I love that. Yeah, I mean, the book itself, I mean, the her tra- travels in Mexico and were seem like enough, but this next stunt that she pulls is even more amazing. Ten days in a madhouse. I would almost say this is the best, her best work. I'm not, you know, I haven't read everything she's written, but, but this was so bold and so uh, unprecedented, you know? Um so she, yeah, she gets hired at New York World, and at some point the editor says you should do this. You should, you know, go undercover in this asylum. This asylum assignment may have been a dare that her editor just expected her to refuse. But that's what I heard. Mm-hmm. But he didn't know Nellie Bly very well. So after he realized she's actually going to go through with it, she's actually going to do it. He told her, and this and this is interesting to me, and I and I was happy to read this. Quote: We do not ask you to go there for the purpose of making sensational revelations. Write up things as you find them, good or bad. Give praise or blame as you think best, and truth all the time. So, I mean, when I think back to Pulitzer and and the New York World, and I think of, you know, the all the yellow journalism and Hearst and all the competition between those papers, I would have thought that an editor would be like. You know, get the craziest, wildest, most sensational story you can. And I love that he, before it even started, he was like, you know, we're going to do this right. We're going to do this like journalists. We're going to report what it is, not what we think people will buy the paper to read, which I loved. That was great. Yeah, it's it's pretty amazing. And, Mm -hmm. but she really does uncover, uncover a lot of, just amazing things that nobody knew was really going on. Exactly. And and it was pretty horrifying, and I'll tell you all about that in a second. And, uh, yeah, it's good to know that right from the start, sensationalism is not what they were going for. So when you hear all this horrific stuff, there's no need for you to think, yeah, right, whatever is played up a little bit. No, she was reporting on how it was. So now the thing, if I had to take this assignment, the thing I would be the most scared of, me personally... Uh, would be ending the assignment. <laughs> how would uh, how would we wrap this up exactly? <laughs> yeah, I actually had a lot of anxiety when I was researching this. Towards the end, I'm like, how the hell is she going to get out of here? There's that's the thing. Yeah, and I work in a psychiatric institute, and I do not leave my lab without wearing my ID because I'm honestly not confident. That if they mistook me for a patient and, you know, whisked me into one of the locked areas, that I could reliably prove that I'm sane. Because psychiatry is still in its infancy, and it was even worse back then. So, yes, how would we end it? And uh, and she shares this concern with her editors uh, and writes it up in the thing. She says, how will you get me out once I get in? And his reply is... I do not know, but we will get you out if we have to tell who you are and for what purposes you feigned insanity only to get in. And she says, I had little belief in my ability to deceive the insanity experts. And I think my editor had less. So they kind of went into this thinking, you know, these are doctors. They're smart people. They're They're never going to believe it. Yeah. Do what you can to get in, but you're probably not going to get in. They're probably going to 
be wise to to our little ploy but let's try it and see what happens was their attitude and try it she did um but another quote she says uh but here let me say one thing from the moment i entered the insane ward on the island this is actually on blackwell's island now roosevelt island uh from the moment i entered the insane ward i made no attempt to keep up the assumed role of insanity I talked and acted just as I do in ordinary life. Yet, strange to say, the more sanely I talked and acted, the crazier I was thought to be by all except one physician. So scary. So, really, really scary. So, yeah, so she was very concerned about being crazy enough. And here's a quote. What a difficult task, I thought, to appear before a crowd of people and convince them that I was insane. I had never been near insane persons before in my life and had not the faintest idea of what their actions were like. And then to be examined by a number of learned physicians who make insanity a specialty and who daily come in contact with insane people, how could I hope to pass these doctors and convince them that I was crazy? I feared that they could not be deceived. Here's a neat thing about how she writes. She has, she's, she's always adding in little personal details first of all she writes in the first person a lot of journalists don't do that and of course it's sort of a, a casual tone but i love it it's fun to read and and she includes really funny personal details um at one point it's like the day before she has to you know get out there and act crazy enough to get to get committed she's you know sort of nervous about it and she said Quote, the weather was not cold, but nevertheless, when I thought of what was to come, wintry chills ran races up and down my back in very mockery of the perspiration, which was slowly but surely taking the curl out of my bangs. Yeah. I love, um, like, to prep to go into the madhouse, which, by the way, um, is now condos, right? Yeah, we toured it. We, we at toured House it. New York. It's, mm -hmm. So we live on Roosevelt Island, and you live mm -hmm. in like the new the condos octagon. that were built out in the octagon. This is where mm -hmm. we're talking about. I mean, it's obviously different now. Yes, it's condos. This is the building but at the north end of the island. Very pretty, you know. Very they, nice. We did it. Very pretty. Yeah, but it looked nice. I wow. was like, if Roosevelt Island wasn't out of the way, I would totally live here. Um, but to prep for going into this insane asylum, uh, she like practices all night in front of a mirror, right? Like making crazy faces, <laughs> she's making faces, and and she, yeah, she's watching herself trying to act crazy, uh, rehearsing a little bit. Yeah, yeah, it's funny. Yeah, so she checks herself into like a working class boarding house, and then she practices mm -hmm. all night looking crazy. And then starts just telling, go, like, uh, acting really skittish and afraid and telling all the other people that live there that they're crazy. Yeah, everyone here looks crazy. Everyone looks like they want to kill me and, or they'll kill us all or something like that. And I love it. It just takes, like, a day, right, of her being like, you're crazy. And the thing is, she she met up with a very nice, sensitive, older woman, motherly figure who... You know, she probably would have gotten committed much, much sooner. But this woman was like, no, no, she's fine. I'll take care of her. And she sat with her all night. And, you know, Nellie Bly writes things like it's, it, you know, this woman is very good to me. And, and I really appreciated that. And I hope any other unfortunate girl who would be in my position in real life 
runs into someone like this, but she's kind of hindering the process, and I would really like to just get committed already. She is, she is. But the police are summoned, the police come, and she's taken to court, she pretends she has amnesia, she just keeps saying, I can't remember, I can't remember. Can't remember, can't remember, yeah. And she's brought before the judge, he asks her a few questions, and she's, you know, she's still this journalist person, she's she's not acting completely mute or, you know, simple or anything like that. She's just, she's still herself. And the judge, it's Judge Duffy, she reports, this quote is, poor child, she is well-dressed and a lady. Her English is perfect, and I would stake everything on her being a good girl. I am positive she is somebody's darling. And she writes, at this announcement, everybody laughed, and I put my handkerchief over my face and endeavored to choke the laughter that threatened to spoil my plans in despite of my resolutions. And so the judge starts, jumps in. He's like, I mean, she is some woman's darling. I am sure someone is searching for her. Poor girl, I will be good to her, for she looks like my sister, who is dead. And there was a hush for a moment after this announcement, and the officers glanced at me more kindly while I silently blessed the kind-hearted judge and, again, hoped any poor creatures who might be afflicted, as I pretended to be, should have as kindly a man to deal with as Judge Duffy. And then, this is really funny, the judge says, I wish the reporters were here. They would be able to find out something about her. Oops. And Bly writes, I got very much frightened at this, for if there's anyone who can ferret out a mystery, it is a reporter. I felt I would rather face a mass of expert doctors policemen and detectives than two bright specimens of my craft which is true reporters were very are i should say very very good at finding things out figuring out questions solving crimes a lot of times they were better than the cops because they were after a good story they would do whatever legwork they had to they would talk to people they could have found her out they could have ruined this right off the bat and she's like oh no Please don't let any reporters show up and and start investigating me. Right. Well, the judge thinks she's been drugged, right? Yeah, because because she's so nice looking and clean and well spoken, and there must be something wrong, which is a really classist attitude, you know, and persists today. I think uh, a lot more people who are living in poverty or uh, trying to survive on minimum wage are a lot more likely to get locked up than. People who have resources, obviously. But, but yeah, they, instead of just saying she's insane, lock her up. They're like, maybe she was drugged. Maybe something else happened. Maybe she took up with a bad man and he, and he beat her or dumped her somewhere. Or they keep thinking of reasons why she's like this. Instead of, in the case of a lot of other people, they're like, she's insane, lock her up. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She, she has to try so hard to get locked up. It's true. Well, then, so then, I mean, you know, working with the judge and all that, she finally gets to the point where a doctor actually examines her. Here's how they examine people for psychiatric conditions. Ready? Here's the very thorough and scientific psychiatric examination they did on her. They, this doctor, looked at her tongue, listened to her heartbeat, and checked her pupils. Yeah, you can tell if somebody's crazy that way, right, Kathleen? Totally. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, really, the tongue is all you need. But the other two are just to, like, support it. Like, that that was all he needed, plus how she was acting, of course. Thus judged insane, Bly earned her entry to the institution. Hmm. Yeah, I, I hear hmm. 
some one of the doctors says she was positively demented. I consider it a hopeless case. She needs to be put where someone will take care of her. I consider it a hopeless case. But there was some um some media attention on her from the the New York Sun and the New York Times. There was. Of course yeah. not uh the New York world mm-hmm. because they're trying to stay out of it. Uh she's the pretty crazy girl and uh they ran articles saying who is this insane girl? Right. And at some point she said she was from Cuba. And they're like, where in Cuba? And she said, on the Hacienda. So, you know, she couldn't say. And they're like, oh, have you been to Havana? And it's like, it's just outside Havana. And she did speak Spanish and had dark hair. And so I guess that was enough to pass as Cuban. Uh, but yeah, there was some interest in the, the mad Cuban. Yeah, novel. pretty. It's, it's funny that the newspapers do take it up. So this is it. What's that? So she's she. This is it. She's uh, she's committed now. Yeah, she made it. She was uh, brought by ambulance. It sounds like to Bellevue, and then later uh, shipped on a boat out to Blackwell, now Roosevelt Island. Um, so when she arrives at Bellevue, here's the quote, just to give you sort of a visual. I stood at the door and contemplated the scene before me. The long, uncarpeted hall was scrubbed to that peculiar whiteness seen only in public institutions. In the rear of the hall were large iron doors fastened by a padlock. Several still-looking benches and a number of willow chairs were the only articles of furniture. On either side of the hall were doors leading into what proved to be the bedrooms. Near the entrance door on the right-hand side was a small sitting room for the nurses, and opposite it was a room where dinner was dished out. So, she is in the institution. She talks to a lot of people, and I'll, I'll tell you about some of those uh, patients in a second. Uh, only women, of course. They had women separated from men. But what she discovered, the three main problems, and these are big, big problems, were absolutely wretchedly horrible treatment from the nurses uh, and fairly indifferent treatment from the doctors. Not, not horrible. The doctors weren't, at least in her report, Horrible. It was the nurses who dealt with them on the day-to-day level who were freaking sociopaths. Uh, Other things that she tells a lot about, and I'll go into some more detail, is the food and how it was inedible. Like a lot of the times it was even spoiled and uh, that it was cold all the time. So this is October that she was getting September, end of September, early October that this whole process was going on and it was cold and that was not something that anyone would do anything about. So to elaborate a little bit on the first thing, which is really the the worst, the most unconscionable, is how horribly the patients were treated. Um, I'll read you a couple of quotes from 10 Days in an Asylum, which, by the way, everyone should read. There's a quote right there on the webpage. Yeah, click on the link. It's free to read. It's a very fast read. It's really interesting. I highly recommend it. So these are some quotes from that uh, from that write-up. The new nurse, Scott, the new nurse, Miss Scott by name, came to me and said rudely, Take off your hat. I shall not take off my hat, I answered. I am waiting for the boat, and I shall not remove it. Well, you are not going on any boat, because she was going to be in Bellevue for a, a few days. You might as well know it now as later. You are in an asylum for the insane. Although fully aware of the fact, her unvarnished words gave me a shock. I did not want to come here. I am not sick or insane, and I will not stay, I said. It will be a long time before you get out if you don't do as you're told, answered Miss Scott. You might as well take off your hat, or I shall use force, and if I am not able to do it, I have but to touch a bell, and I shall get assistance. Will you take it off? 
And Bly says, no, I will not. I am cold, and I want my hat on, and you can't make me take it off. And the nurse is, then says, I shall give you a few more minutes, and if you don't take it off, then I shall use force, and I warn you, it will not be very gentle. So, spoiler alert, Nellie Bly does take her hat off, because she's thinking that if she stands up to the nurse too much, then they're going to catch on that she's not insane. She takes her hat off. Uh, at another point, she's writing about how hard it is to sleep there. Uh, all night long, the nurses read one to the other aloud, and I know that the other patients, as well as myself, were unable to sleep. Every half hour or hour, they would walk heavily down the halls, their boot heels resounding like the march of a private of dragoons, and take a look at every patient. Of course, this helped to keep us awake. So, it's freezing, the food is terrible, the nurses are mean, and they can't even sleep. They can't even escape their existence that way. Um, when other patients learned that Bly could play piano, they insisted that she play for them. Here's the quote. Then they seated me on a wooden chair before an old-fashioned square. I struck a few notes, and the untuned response sent a grinding chill through me. How horrible, I explained, turning to a nurse, Miss McCartan, who stood at my side. I never touched a piano as much out of tune. It's a pity of you, she said spitefully. We'll have to get one made to order for you. Damn. It did not seem very sanitary, especially with the bathing procedures. The quote is, uh, we were taken into a cold, wet bathroom and I was ordered to undress. Did I protest? Well, I never grew so earnest in my life as when I tried to beg off. They said if I did not, they would use force, and that it would not be very gentle. At this, I noticed one of the craziest women in the ward, standing by the filled bathtub with a large, discolored rag in her hands. She was chattering away to herself and chuckling in a manner which seemed to me fiendish. I knew now what was to be done with me. I shivered. They began to undress me, and one by one they pulled off my clothes. At last, everything was gone, excepting one garment. I will not remove it, I said vehemently, but they took it off. So, and then she got scrubbed, and it was, of course, cold water, harsh soap. And she was not happy with how roughly they treated her hair. After I love her hair is her big. It thing. is. It's a very. <laughs> it's her crowning glory. <laughs> she likes to mention it. Um, it's ridiculous. After this bath, they didn't. You know, they just put them in their nightgowns, dripping wet. Not their nightgowns, like a, a short little flannel shirt. And then it's bedtime, and the quote is: "When Miss Group, one of the nurses, came in, I asked if I could not have a nightgown. We do not have such things in this institution," she said. I do not like to sleep without, I replied. Well, I don't care about that, she said. You are in a public institution now, and you can't expect to get anything. This is charity, and you should be thankful for what you get. But the city pays to keep these places up, I urged, and pays people to be kind to the unfortunates brought here. Well, you don't need to expect any kindness here, for you won't get it, she said, and she went out and closed the door. That's kind of a recurring thing, is the nurses are like, your charity... Just take what we give you and be grateful for it. Yeah. I mean, there there's a lot more abuse as well. You know, some of the patients that are deemed dangerous are tied. They're all tied together with rope. And I, th I think just like left on the floor. Or or they would even take strolls around Blackwell's Island. But, but you know, they were the most insane and dangerous of all, the ones that were tied together by rope. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, still so... So terrible. There, the nurses make them sit on, uh, 
like all day long, they sit on these really hard benches, right? Like mm-hmm, they're just mm-hmm. for like 13 hours a day and they're not allowed to talk. Exactly. Uh, the nurses beat, will tell the patients to shut up and the nurses will beat them. Mm-hmm. The beatings are atrocious and she does describe them and I don't have any quotes about that because it was really, to be honest, really disturbing. But yeah, uh, anyone who complained or even people who didn't complain would would get beaten and uh there are a number of instances of people dying not necessarily being beaten to death but of you know freezing to death or neglect or high fevers or you know people wouldn't eat the horrible food which i'll describe in a minute and get weaker and weaker i mean it's it's ridiculous well i mean especially since it's getting cold the nurses are throwing buckets of ice water on you you know it's it's kind of no wonder and she says that, you know, these women are coming here to be cured, you know, essentially, or some of these women aren't crazy at all, and this is what will make you go insane, is this place. So another example of, uh, of cruelty by the nurses, uh, Bly writes, I came in and saw Miss Grady with my notebook and long lead pencil, bought just for the occasion. I want my book and pencil, I said, quite truthfully. It helps me remember things. I was very anxious to get it to make notes and was disappointed when she said, you can't have it, so shut up. Some days later, I asked the doctor, Dr. Ingram, if I could have it, and he promised to consider the matter. When I again referred to it, he said, Miss Grady said I had only brought a book there, and that I had no pencil. I was provoked and insisted I had, whereupon I was advised to fight against the imaginations of my brain. Because obviously, she's deluded. And one really cruel situation, um, she describes an old woman's experience on the ward. So the quote is, She appeared easily 70 years old, and she was blind. Although the halls were freezing cold, that old woman had no more clothing on than the rest of us, which I have described. And it was basically a dress and, and a skirt on top of it, but insufficient for keeping them warm. When she was brought into the sitting room and placed on the hard bench, she cried, Oh, what are you doing with me? I'm cold, so cold. Why can't I stay in bed or have a shawl? And then she would get up and endeavor to feel her way to leave the room. Sometimes the attendants would jerk her back to the bench, and again they would let her walk and heartlessly laugh when she bumped against the table or the edge of the benches. At one time she said the heavy shoes which Charity provides hurt her feet, and she took them off. The nurse made two patients put them on her again, and when she did it several times and fought against having them on, I counted seven people at her at once, trying to put the shoes on her. The old woman then tried to lie down on the bench, but they pulled her up again. It sounded so pitiful to hear her cry, Oh, give me a pillow and pull the covers over me. I'm so cold. At this, I saw Miss Group, one of the nurses, sit down on her and run her cold hands over the old woman's face and down inside the neck of her dress. At the old woman's cries, she laughed savagely, as did the other nurses, and repeated her cruel action. That day, the old woman was carried away to another ward. And that's not even the worst of it. I mean, the it's it's ridiculous what the nurses were able to get away with. And part of the reason they were able to do that is they would post a patient at the window as lookout. And if the doctor was coming, they would know, they would get warned and they would know to knock off being such ridiculously horrific human beings. Um, 
And then relating to the cold, on this morning I had a long conversation with Dr. Ingram, the assistant superintendent of the asylum. I found that he was kind to the helpless in his charge. I began my old complaint of the cold, and he called Miss Grady to the office and ordered more clothing given to the patients. Miss Grady said to me if I made a practice of telling, it would be a serious thing for me. She warned me in time. And those are just a few of the examples of how awful the nurses were to the patients, but they're was nothing they could do. They were crazy. So she described how the food was so awful. Uh, the exact quote is, the eating was one of the most horrible things. Excepting the first two days after I entered the asylum, there was no salt for the food. The hungry and even famishing women made an attempt to eat the horrible messes. Mustard and vinegar were put on meat and in soup to give it a taste, but it only helped to make it worse. Even that was all consumed after two days, and the patients had to try to choke down fish boiled in water without salt, pepper, or butter, mutton, beef, and potatoes without the faintest seasoning. The most insane refused to swallow the food and were threatened with punishment. In our short walks, we passed the kitchen, where food was prepared for the nurses and doctors. There we got glimpses of melons and grapes and all kinds of fruits, beautiful white bread and nice meats, and the hungry feeling would be increased tenfold. I spoke to some of the physicians, but it had no effect, and when I was taken away, the food was yet unsalted. They, she had to deal with not just, like, weak tea that tasted like metal or, um, you know, bread that was tough and dry. She had to deal with uh, bugs in the food, rancid butter, meat that had gone bad, Everything was cold. It, it sounded awful. In a lot of cases, the meat was too tough to eat for anyone who was toothless or had bad teeth. They just couldn't eat it then. It was awful, awful. The food was awful. Well, yeah, and the drinking water is dirty. Like, you can't drink the water either. And apparently there's um, waste all around mm. the eating places. It's not clean. It's disgusting filthy there are rats everywhere yeah yeah it was all over the hospital it was not well done and then the cold was a serious serious problem um all the windows were open cold air began to blow what she what the way she phrased it is cold air began to tell on my southern blood it grew so cold it was almost unbearable and when she complained to the nurses of course they answered curtly that i was in a charity place and i could not expect much else all the women were suffering, and the nurses themselves had to wear very heavy garments and coats to keep themselves warm. They couldn't go to bed. Uh, at one point, they gave her a gray, a gray shawl, but they had to shake some moths out of it. <laughs> Ew. They took their clothing away and gave them institutional co clothing, which was insufficient. Um, she once complained about the cold to a doctor, and he agreed with her. And he told the nurse, the cold is almost unbearable in here, and you'll have some cases of pneumonia if you're not careful. But... Oh, well, it stayed cold. Yeah, can you imagine if she'd actually stayed there later into the exactly. winter? Exactly. This is only October, September? Yeah, I know, I know. They did. One of the nurses said, well, they don't turn on the heat until October. The pipes aren't even set up for it, so we just have to, you just have to deal with it. But they all had coats and, you know, heavy woolen skirts and things like that. So as atrocious as the institution was, Bly was not the only sane person on the ward she introduced herself to all the women there she asked them their story uh one woman just was sick she she had overworked herself so it sounds like she kind of 
got exhausted. Uh, she'd been working as a chambermaid. This is Miss Anne Neville. And when her health gave away, she was sent to some sister's home, a nun's home, to be treated. Her nephew was a waiter, but was out of work, and he couldn't pay her expenses at the sister's home, so he had her transferred to Bellevue. And Bly asks her, is there anything wrong with you mentally also? And uh, Miss Ann Neville says, no, the doctors have been asking me many curious questions and confusing me as much as possible, but I have nothing wrong with my brain. And Bly says, do you know only insane people are sent to this pavilion? Uh, Neville responds, yeah, I, yes, I know, but I am unable to do anything. The doctors refuse to listen to me, and it is useless to say anything to the nurses. So in a lot of cases... Women were confined to Bellevue and then later on Blackwell's Island just because they were poor and they had nowhere else to go if they were ill. Um, one woman was locked up for quarreling. She was, uh, uh, what was she? She was a cook and she was very, very neat. She scrubbed the kitchen floor. The chambermaids came down and deliberately messed it up. So she yelled at them. Then an officer was called and she was taken to an asylum. Um, another woman was German, did not speak English very well, and she was consigned to an asylum without the chance of making herself understood. Bly writes, can such carelessness be excused, I wonder, when it is so easy to get an interpreter? If the confinement was but for a few days, one might question the necessity, but she was taken without her own consent from the free world to an asylum with no chance to prove her sanity. She might be there forever, and this woman, because she spoke German and not English, had no hope of getting out. Even a criminal, Bly points out, is able to know why they are locked up and able to defend themselves. It's ridiculous. And and, and sometimes people were like actually physically ill and were put into the asylum just because an accident. It's ridiculous. One woman, her husband locked her up. The, the quote is, a pretty young Hebrew woman spoke so little English that I could not get her story except as told by the nurses. They said her name was Sarah Fishbaum and that her husband put her in asylum because she had a fondness for other men than himself. Oh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She did finally get out. She testified the, the a lot a lot of things were cleaned up, fixed, changed. Not everything, of course. Even now, institutions have their flaws. But she wrote up this expose, and it was huge, huge, huge. Uh, yeah, I kind of have nightmares about about this asylum. It really sounds like something out of a horror novel. And yeah, Pulitzer is able to get her out. The article comes out. It's... People are really horrified by this. It's really a game changer. So I'm sure you're asking yourself, Kathleen, what do you do after for a follow-up? I am. To locking yourself in an insane asylum. There's no way to top that stunt. Oh, what about traveling around the world in 72 days? Mm? So there's the novel by Jules Verne, Around the World in 80 Days, and she suggests to the world, which I, the New York world, which I love that they're like, yes. She just comes up with these mm -hmm. ideas, goes to her editor, is like, I want to do this, and they back her. So she yeah, goes go to her. Do it, yes. Yeah, she goes to her editor and says, I want to actually do this in real life. Like, I actually want to be able to get around the world. In eighty day, in at least eighty days, 
See if I can beat it. See if I can beat it, um, because it's a novel, and so she wants to make it a reality. So in this is in 1888. Mm -hmm. A year later, she's they give her two days notice, and then she's off. (gasps) Two days notice? Are you serious? Two days notice, which is is pretty amazing, and she Mm -hmm. leaves with only the dress she's wearing. Mm-hmm. Uh, an overcoat, which uh, I'll put on the website. It's from the publicity. You can kind of see what she wore on the trip. Very she wore an, over, an overcoat. She had a mm-hmm. couple changes of underwear, a little bag that she carried the stuff she wasn't wearing in. She had about, I think, uh, 200 pounds in English money, uh, a little bit of gold, and a little bit of American money. And that's oh it. Gosh. No books. <laughs> I don't know what I'd do if I didn't have a book. She didn't have any books, nothing. So now at the same, so this is, you know, I I don't know where she comes up with this idea, Mm -hmm. but um, when she does this to, to challenge her, the New York newspaper Cosmopolitan sponsors its own girl reporter, Elizabeth Bisland, to beat her. But Elizabeth Bisland is going to go the opposite way around the world. Ah, yes. And the New York world organizes, like, a lot to keep people interested, because they know it's going to take, it's a long time to keep people interested. Uh, Yes. You know, two and a half months almost, uh, almost three months. You got to keep people going. So they have a Nellie Bly guessing match in the newspaper that they're going to set up, which is where, uh, Kathleen, you can, as a reader, you can estimate Bly's arrival down to the second and if you get it right, you get a, uh, the grand prize is a free trip to Europe with spending money. What? Yep. I'll do that. I know. I would totally try to figure it out. I'm mm-hmm. sure there's math mm-hmm. to figure it out. Uh, sure. So uh, at 9.40 in the morning on November mm-hmm. 14th, 1889, remember, two days notice, she right. boards the Augusta Victoria and begins... The 24,889-mile trip. Oh, my God. I love traveling, but that might be too much. That's a little too much. I'm just going to say it. Yeah, I don't love it that much. <laughs> no. Wow. So I'm going to I'm gonna put... There's like a little map where somebody charted out where she went. Mm-hmm. She starts in Jersey City. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then her first stop is London. She gets to England. And she really just keeps going. Like, there's not like, oh, Big Ben... You know, the queen. No, she just really, she's got a deadline. She's got to beat the clock. That's it. Yeah, yeah. Let's get there and get moving. Yeah. Uh, the cool thing is, though, she does stop in France and she meets Jules Verne on the way. And she's like, hey, huh. guess what? I'm Ew. doing this. Uh-huh. Uh, which I, I hope he'd heard of and it wasn't just some crazy person showing up on his door. Right, right. Uh, her next stop is Brindisi, Italy. She goes through the Suez Canal, um, modern-day Sri Lanka, which was Ceylon at the time. Ceylon. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She, I mean, it's some of this is really. I mean, the trip itself sounds pretty amazing, but the big part of this is that she's a woman traveling on her own. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no. Pretty much, she's not escorted most of this trip. It's just her on different modes of transportation. Mm-hmm. Trains. Highly unusual, very dangerous, yeah. at least considered dangerous. It's kind of yeah. Nellie's thing. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She then goes through, as I said, she went through Sri Lanka, uh, mm-hmm. the Straits and Settlements of Penang, Singapore, Hong Kong, Japan. Now, along the way, she... What was she could send short progress reports as she goes? I'm sure they did like little articles like Nellie's in Sri Lanka or you know, Nellie's. There's no pictures, by the way. There's just, I mean, uh, in the end, mm-hmm. y- you get some stuff, Her but right up, yeah. Uh, it's mostly short posts, uh, which there were submarine cable it's networks, telegrams, mostly, yeah, yeah, as well as what? electric telegraph. You're you know, they can send it that way. Mm. So that's how she sends her short stuff. But her longer mm-hmm. dispatches have to go by regular post. So they get delayed by weeks. So I'm sure they get these little things like, I just met Jules Verne. And then when she's in, you know, uh, Penang, then they get the actual full article on meeting Jules Verne. So it's it's got to be really tough. There is a book about this. She, you know, she publishes a book about her travel, so I really recommend it. Uh, Her travel, she goes by steamship, she goes by railroads, existing railroads. Uh, She does does really good time until she hits Asia, and then she starts, you know, the trains either are derailed, or there's, she doesn't catch a boat, or Mm. there's, there's a few times where she isn't able to keep up the momentum that she had, and this is where she gets to take some side trips that are pretty amazing. Like she visits a leper colony in China, and your favorite, I think, she buys a monkey in Singapore. She buys a monkey. Why the hell not? She buys. She buys a monkey. I love that part. <laughs> That's great. Uh, yeah. So finally, here she is. She gets to the Pacific, and she's just got across an ocean and one more continent, and she's going to be there. Almost there. But she gets really bad weather in the Pacific Ocean and delays her arrival in San Francisco. She's actually on a White Star Line, the Oceanic, at this point. It's January twenty-first, and I think Pulitzer knows if he doesn't do something, she's not going to make it. Right. So he uh, charters a private train, and it brings her all the way home. No stops. Oh, my God. How did you even do that? I mean, I get it. You're Pulitzer. You're incredibly wealthy, but how, uh, wow. Wow. She makes amazing time. I've driven across country. she wouldn't country. have made it otherwise. It's the only way to get no. the story. There's, it's the only way. And, you know, I'm sure they had a whole of – there's a whole event for when she gets there. I'll try mm-hmm. to find a picture – you know, when she finally gets to Jersey City, which is, of course, where she started. Right. There's, you know, people waiting for her. People have been following this for months. It's a big event. So he, you know, Pulitzer's like, if I'm going to get the readership out of this, she's mm-hmm. got to make it. Exactly. It's non-negotiable. Yeah. Right. So she makes great time. She makes it in four days across the country on train. So on January 25th. 1890, she makes it at 3.51 p.m. It took her 72 days, 72 6 hours, days. yeah, 11 minutes, and 14 seconds. They even got it down to the seconds. Well, they got it down to the seconds. In case you're curious what happened to our other girl reporter, yes. Miss, Miss Bisland was still traveling. She missed a connection like Nellie Bly and gets stuck, has to take the next boat, which is a slower boat. Yeah. And I think she's crossing the Atlantic 
And she would have made it, right, if it hadn't been for the, the having exactly. to take the slow boat. So she, she almost did it, but not quite. But she, Nellie sets a world record, um, but she only keeps the world record for a few months. Whatever. She still said it. Yeah. But it, it really gets shorter. And, I mean, now, of course, it's extremely short. But Of course. Uh, George Francis Train beats her uh, 67 days, and then just by 1913, it's down to 36 days. Wow. Wow. They cut it in half. They did. They That's did. That's amazing. Which now, it could just be a couple days, right, if you could fly nonstop? Uh, I think even faster than that. And then you get into time zones and stuff like that. But we don't have the Concorde anymore. That That's best. And I think someone did that. I think that's what the existing world record is, is someone rode the Concorde back when the Concorde was still flying. So her book, by the way, uh, is just called Around the World in 72 Days. You can actually find it, the whole thing online. It's pretty amazing. Most of her books, you can just find them online. They're They're free. You can, they're not very long. If you have travel coming up, which Kathleen and I both have massive amount of travel coming up, uh, I recommend it. Put it on your iPad if you've got it, you know, print it out. Yeah, 10 Days in the Asylum is free. It is out there. It's a really good read. I recommend it. Yeah, I, I actually, I read a while ago the one on uh, her travels to Mexico, which I need to brush up on it. So maybe I'll read it on my plane ride coming up. Yeah. Well, Nellie's life stays pretty good from then on, but she really kind of hits her peak with that. Like, that's the height of her fame, I think. Those were the two big epic projects that she did. And she kept on reporting is the thing. She didn't, you know, retire or anything. Well, not yet. Just she works to expose corruption. Uh, She writes about the injustice of poverty. She revealed shady lobbyists, uh, the ways women prisoners are treated by the police, Inadequate medical care given to the poor, much, much more. She always sided with the poor and the disenfranchised. This is interesting. She went to Chicago in 1894 to cover the Pullman Railroad strike. She was the only reporter who told about the strike from the perspective of the strikers. Can you imagine that? There must have been so much press and everyone is talking about it from from the point of view of the boss. Amazing. I couldn't believe that. Well, in case you were wondering, our Miss Nellie Bly does not stay unmarried forever. She, she, when, is she, when she's 30, I believe, she marries a millionaire manufacturer, Robert Seaman, 40 years her senior, Kathleen. He's, he is 70 years old. Yes. It's, yep. I'm just going to let you guys think about that for a second. She's 30. And he's 70. He's 70. I mean. That's all. And he's a millionaire. Mm-hmm. Just, he's an industrialist. Just something to, to think about there. She's set for life. She's fine. Mm-hmm. She's fine. Uh, she I'm retires tight. at this point, right? Retired at 30. Mm-hmm. 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 But, well, she retired from journalism. Then she went on to running his company. And this is where her patents come in. Right. She, so the company is Ironclad Manufacturing Company. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're not actually married too long. I think about nine years. He dies in 1904, and that's when she becomes the president, right? Mm-hmm. She's in charge of the company then, yeah. Uh, they built uh, oil drums, mm-hmm. which actually are still being used today. 
Yeah. And she oversaw the development of a stackable oil drum, which they didn't right, have before. Right. Lord knows how they transported things, but yeah. One at a time. <laughs> uh, but she gets a patent, patent U.S. patent 697553 for a milk can mm-hmm. and for a star- uh, also for a stacking garbage can. She likes these stacking. She likes to stack yeah. things. It comes in um, She puts them both under her married name of Elizabeth Cochran with an E, Mm -hmm. Seaman. So she kept that extra little E there. And, but I mean, she does go bankrupt at some point. Yeah. So it seems as though there was a lot of embezzlement, I believe, at the, at the corporation. So, you know, she steps up, she's president, everything's great until all of a sudden... It's not, which if you think about it, is very similar to her mom's situation. Yeah. He's married to like the biggest man in town. The town was named after him. He dies. She ends and up with nothing. It's all gone. But she does go back into reporting. She She returns to journalism. Yeah. Right. She falls up back on what she knows. She ends mm-hmm. up uh on Europe's eastern front during World War One. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Pretty amazing. amazing. She covers a lot of women's really. suffrage events. Um, I love that she one of her headlines is suffragists are men's superiors. Just <laughs> <Right. laughs> pretty great. I can't believe they let her publish that. That's amazing. They just I think she really gets away with with everything. I think at that point she's Nellie freaking Bly. Yeah. She's going to put up what she's going to put yeah. up. That's it. Uh yeah, I she never really recovers those millions that big fortune she had, but she's pretty comfortable. I mean, she's Nellie Bly. She can always write an article, get a paycheck. She uh, really becomes interested in orphanages. I think a lot of that has to do with, you know, losing her father at such a young age. Uh, there's there's a few children that she really takes care of. She has a niece, and eventually towards the end when she gets very ill, some of the babies, I, it's not several babies uh, that she takes care of she's like she just goes to her niece and's like hey you know can you just make sure make sure these guys are okay <laughs> for the rest of their lives and then sadly she dies of pneumonia at St. Mark's very young 57 I when when they say you know she gets ill later in life I imagine like an 80 year old woman but she dies she dies very young 57 yeah in 1922 mm-hmm. 50s yeah, yeah. So she never had any of her own kids, right? She she had these sort of adopted or foster kids or something like that, but never never actually gave birth, right? Well, I mean, her husband was 70. This is true. This is true. This is true. Um, and if you'd like to go visit Ms. Bly, she is interred at Woodland Cemetery in the Bronx. Mm-hmm. Right there. On New York the, City girl. Right on the subway line. Yep, yep. Really amazing story. Wow. You know, I look at that and I'm like, what the heck am I doing with my life? And I have the vote and stuff. You know, what, what's what's holding me back, Kate? What's holding me back? Do you want to get checked into a mental asylum? I do not. <laughs> um, she, gets some, she gets some pretty, like, amazing people, a lot of shout outs. Like, somebody, actually, uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald actually mentions her in The Great Gatsby. I don't know. Yeah, there's a musical written about her. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And she gets to interview. She's she's famous, and this opens doors for her. She was able to profile 
boxer John L. Sullivan, suffragist Susan B. Anthony, and anarchist Emma Goldman. Because she's like a celebrity herself at that point, so she can talk to these amazing people. Emma Goldman, we've really got to cover her at some point. We should. We should. What do we got for E and G? We'll have to... You guys will have to tune in. You'll see. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Well, I hope you learned a little bit about Miss Nellie Bly that you didn't know before. Uh, pretty I hope you're amazing. Able to fully woman. appreciate how awesome she is. Yeah. Yeah, I kind of love her. She's really cool. Definitely. Definitely. Hope you enjoyed the show, and we will talk to you next time with episode C. Yeah, tune in next time. See you soon. Talk to you then. Bye. Bye. Be here with me on this night in New York City. For more ABC Gotham, go to our website, abcgotham.podbean.com. Special thanks to Podcasting's Brock. Music for ABC Gotham is by Big Rude Jake. ABC Gotham is a K2 production, copyright 2013, all rights reserved. On this night of New York City